Good morning and welcome. This morning I'm going to turn back to Matthew chapter 5. But before I do that, I just wanted to acknowledge the loss of one of uh, Christianity's greatest defenders of our day. And in this age where the media publicly mourns the loss of sports figures and actors and people like that um, who have no real true importance in our world other than just being a public figure. Um, Ravi Zacharias uh, passed away this past week of cancer at the age of 74. And Ravi Zacharias is a Christian apologist who would often speak to groups of university students, uh, among others, but in those talks that he would give, he would allow people to come up to a microphone and, and ask him questions, any question that they wanted. And he would answer that question charitably, often humorously, but without putting down the person who asked the question. And he would answer those questions profoundly countering any argument against Christianity or the existence of God. Um, in a way that very few are able to do. Was he perfect? Of course not. But his work for the sake of the gospel was far-reaching, having preached in more than 70 countries and written some 30 books. Perhaps one of his greatest attributes was his ability to counter those atheistic views and to cause them to appear as foolish as they truly are. One quote that he had written, it said, to sustain the belief that there is no God, atheism, sorry, atheism has to demonstrate infinite knowledge, which is tantamount to saying, I have infinite knowledge that there is no being in existence with infinite knowledge. Another quote that I found of his said, I think that the reason we have the false sense that God is so far away is because that is where we have put him. We have kept him at a distance, and then when we are in need and call on him in prayer, we wonder where he is. He is exactly where we left him. So these are the kinds of things that uh, Ravi Zacharias was well known for, for saying. Um, his preaching is very encouraging, um, very thought-filled. And so if you're not familiar with his work, I'd encourage you to research and find, listen to some of his preaching if that's possible. Um, and like I mentioned, I especially enjoyed listening to him as he would respond to questions from atheistic university students who thought that they had the answers, and um, his response is quite incredible. So he had a, a truly gifted mind when it came to defending the Christian faith, and he will be missed by many. As we turn to the Bible, um, if you want to follow along, Again, I'm reading Matthew chapter 5. As a reminder 
of the setting as we are jumping into the middle of this. Uh, Jesus has gathered quite a crowd. He has been traveling around preaching and um, teaching and people have started following him. And at this point, he has positioned himself on a hillside and he's began to preach to the crowd. This is the passage of scripture that we know as the Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus challenges the religious status quo as he goes point by point through many Old Testament laws and explains the intent behind those laws, convicting people of their sin, causing people to understand that they are sinners despite having thought that they have kept the law. He's removing any notion of self-righteous obedience to the law in the people that he's talking to. He's establishing their need of a savior, their need of salvation. Today's examples initially appear to take a bit of a turn from this pattern that it looks on the surface that instead of expanding and clarifying the intent behind the law, it seems as if he's changing or reversing the teaching of the Old Testament. Let's read the passage and then we'll look at what Jesus is saying in more detail and consider that thought. So Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to start in verse 33 and read to the end of the chapter. So Matthew 5:33. Again ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but thou shalt perform unto the Lord thine oath. But I say unto you, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, Neither shalt thou swear by the head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, Turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile with him, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor, and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward of ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only... What do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, 
even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Now this first section, uh, the section from verse 33 to verse 37, talks about the making of an oath. Verse 33 is in reference to Leviticus 19, verse 12, which says, And ye shall not swear by by my name falsely, neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God. I am the Lord. Uh, Also in Numbers chapter 30, verse 2, it says, If a man vow a vow unto the Lord, or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceedeth out of his mouth. And then again in Deuteronomy 23, verse 21, it says, When thou shalt vow a vow unto the Lord thy God, thou shalt not slack to pay it. For the Lord thy God will surely require it of thee, and it would be sin in thee. So these Old Testament verses that speak on this exact topic clearly teach not that we shouldn't make vows, but that we need to keep the vows that we make, and we must not swear falsely. So why does Jesus in Matthew 5.34 say to swear not at all? To answer that, we first need to consider the context of the passage. The immediate context that refers us to the Old Testament verses that we just read, and also the elaboration of this in the following verses, where Jesus gets specific about the ways that people do this, or the things that they swear by. So in the context, we can see that the main reference is regarding not keeping an oath, which, sorry, is is regarding not keeping an oath, which leads to sin. But the Old Testament primarily makes reference to making an oath to God or in his name. And so what people would do to bypass this was to swear by these other things instead of by God's name. So they would swear by heaven or by earth or by their head. Um, These were the examples that Jesus gave that people were using to swear by. And so by calling out these things, that people would swear by, and relating them back to God as the author of creation that they were swearing by. Jesus is saying that they are, in essence, or for all practical purposes, in God's eyes, they were still swearing by God, and therefore still guilty of the sin described in the Old Testament, even though they didn't swear by God's name directly. I hope that was halfway clear. So really, this isn't any different than the previous examples of the murder or adultery or these sorts of things, that Jesus is just opening up the scriptures, revealing the sin that exists in the people who thought that they were without sin. They thought that they were innocent. But Jesus is revealing the truth of their guiltiness before a holy and just God, that there is none righteous, no, not one. And so this is just another way where Jesus is just opening up the scriptures and revealing that what they're doing, the way they're trying to get around this law, this this guideline in the Old Testament, 
they're not succeeding. They're not fooling God by changing what they're swearing by and then breaking the oath or swearing falsely, making false claims. They're still doing what the Bible was telling them to not do. And so when we look at it from this perspective, when Jesus tells them not to swear at all, he isn't giving them a new or a contradictory rule. He's simply giving a prescription for how to avoid the sin that results from not keeping an oath or from swearing falsely. That is, if, if you don't make an oath, there's no risk of breaking it. Of course, he doesn't stop at that, um, which would give people an escape, a way of not keeping their word. So if I don't make an oath, if I don't swear by whatever fill in the blank, then I don't have to follow through with what I've said because I haven't sworn that this was a true statement and now I just don't have to keep my word. So in verse 37, Jesus covers that ground as well. He says, let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. In other words, if you say yes or an affirmative answer to something, then you need to follow through with that. You must fulfill that declaration of yes, whatever it was. And if you say no, it needs to be true. You need to, if you say you can't do something or you don't have something or whatever it is that you've said no about, if it's not a true statement, or if you go and do what you said you wouldn't do, it's just as if you had sworn by God's name. Let your word be true. So the question, has Jesus made a change concerning the making of an oath? No, he's simply saying that your word is your oath, whether or not you swear by anything. God is still going to hold you accountable for your word. As we continue reading, uh, verses 38 to 42 deal with another topic, the topic of retaliation and the concept of this eye for an eye making things even, getting revenge for the wrongs that have been done to us. It's interesting that we end up turning to the same three areas of the Old Testament scripture to establish the law that had actually been given in the Old Testament regarding this eye for the eye principle. <clears throat> in the same three areas, um, I'm not going to read them directly, but I'll give you the references. Exodus 21 verses 24, Leviticus 24 verse 20, and Deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 21. And these are all very close to the other passages that we looked up regarding the oaths. Um, it's part of the same section of scripture regarding the law and, and these types of things. So now these passages actually aren't limited to this phrase, an eye for an eye, but they contain a broader list of equivalent punishments for wrongs done. Essentially, what it's teaching is that whatever the loss that you have caused to someone else, you would have the same thing done to you as a just punishment. 
it's a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, all these kinds of things. And um, this instruction actually extends beyond that. It extends into personal property such as cattle as well. So it, it follows an ox for an ox, a lamb for a lamb, these kinds of things. So in fact, these passages are so detailed that we can study these to come up with what is a fair judgment when things go wrong between two people, sometimes even in unintentional ways. And I'll, I'll just give an example of this. Um, a number of years back, I was traveling with my family out west to visit my parents, and we were planning on purchasing a horse on that trip, and we were going to be having a trailer and bringing that horse home. And so because we were already traveling out west and we had the stock trailer, a friend of ours asked, had found a dairy goat that she was interested in somewhere along the, the route. And so she asked if we could pick it up and bring it back for her at the same time. And so we agreed to do this. We bought the goat and brought it home. But as soon as we pulled in our yard and we opened the gate of the trailer to let the horse out, the goat jumped the barrier in the trailer and bolted out the door and off into the bush. By some miracle, um, I would say that through our prayer that God answered that prayer and that goat did manage to survive and we managed to retrieve it from, I'll say a neighbor, but it was not exactly a direct neighbor. This is someone several kilometers away on a different road that the goat had traveled through the bush and ended up in their yard and they managed to catch it and we retrieved it a few days later. But in the meantime, we figured the goat was gone and we were trying to come up with a solution as to who was now responsible for the cost of that goat. Was it going to be me who had already paid for the goat out of my own pocket, but it was a goat that I would never have bought for myself. It wasn't, in, wasn't intending to keep the goat. I bought it because I was asked to buy it. Or now was she responsible even though she never even got to see the goat and was never going to receive the goat. This is a hard question. How do you decide who should pay for the goat? Now, I'm sure if you're thinking about this, you'd say, well, why didn't you split the cost half and half? And that's probably what we would have done on our own. But would you believe that the Bible actually describes this very this very scenario, not the exact details, but the scenario in general is described in this Old Testament passage in Exodus chapter 22. And it tells us exactly who is responsible for the cost of that goat. And if you want to find out the answer to that, I want you can go and read Exodus chapter 22 to find that answer. This is how I get you to read your Bibles. So what's my point? Just that these passages of scriptures are meant as a means of determining what is fair as a judgment for various circumstances. Yes, God is interested in justice being done. Deuteronomy 19 verse 19 explains that using this level of justice has a purpose. It's to put away evil 
from among us. And so God's actually instructing them, make sure you uphold justice so that people will fear to do evil. And they'll put away that evil from among them. And so as we look at what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5 about turning the other cheek, we see that there's more to it than that. These guidelines given in the Old Testament weren't simply the required judgment, but they were also the limits of judgment. It's the limit of what retribution could be required for whatever the wrong done was. In other words, a man was not to lose his life over the loss of another man's hand. The limit given was the loss of his hand, the equivalent punishment for the damage that he had caused. Thus, the shortened version of that, that is the common phrase, an eye for an eye. If we see this as a limit to the punishment and look at what Jesus is saying again, he isn't changing the law or suggesting that crimes go unpunished. But you can see by the examples given that people were using this as a means of justifying their personal retaliation against everything that someone might have done to them that they didn't like. Jesus is simply trying to insert a little bit of grace into their lives. This carries on in the next section regarding loving your enemy. Jesus isn't undoing any Old Testament laws here. As he says these things, those laws, the judgments given, still stand. But what Jesus is doing is revealing God's grace towards people, trying to get them to have a little bit of grace when dealing with one another. Verse 45 says, that ye may be the children of your Father, which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. Jesus then relates this to the publicans, this group of sinners that rejected God and, and his moral law. And he says to the Jews in front of him, what difference is there between you and them. If you're only kind to those who are kind to you. If, you're, if you only do good to those who are doing good to you. What Jesus is trying to explain is that God wants his people to be different from the rest of the world. He wants his people to stand out from the world. God's standards are being established in the law in showing that people are guilty of breaking God's law when they think that they're finding loopholes and finding a way around it. But the extent of the intent of God's law is so far-reaching that it makes us all guilty. But he's also establishing now his grace. His grace is being revealed to show the people how loving and caring he is to all of his people, to all sinners. He gives rain on the just and the unjust. He makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. God takes care 
of people who completely reject him. And so he's trying to explain now to these Jews to have that same kind of grace with others. He's trying to get them to allow some wrong, some level of wrong to be done to them without seeking retaliation to show God's love and God's grace, to demonstrate that they are God's children, to show God's character. Jesus is trying to get these people to conform to his image, to the image of God in the way that they live and conduct themselves. Jesus is dealing with the hardness of their hearts, showing them that their sin even extends, extending to the way that they execute judgment, that the Bible tells them to execute, that they took judgment too far, but weren't judging their own sin nearly enough. What about you and me? Do we excuse our own sin while harshly judging others? Perhaps you're in a situation where turning the other cheek rather than insisting on an eye for an eye would show God's love working through you. On the other hand, does that mean that as a Christian, we should act like a doormat, letting people hurt and take advantage of us? Of course not. Jesus was not a doormat. Jesus was not a pushover. Jesus was not a pacifist. You look at his life and the way he responded in various situations, that is not what Jesus is advocating at this time. You have to realize that he is dealing with the opposite problem. He's dealing with these hard hearts, this unrelenting vengefulness. And if that's where we have issues, that is where he's working in our hearts as well. So may God soften our hearts and conform us to his image. Thanks for joining me. Until next time. Bye for now.